The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. You've descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, a commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. This episode is brought to you by Ocean Eye Inc. Ocean Eye's main focus is you, the commercial diver. With industry leading end to end service and expertise, they got everything you need for your next dive job. You need your gear maintenance or repaired? Need some new products or consulting? Ocean Eyes got you covered. Give them a call at 610-621-5750 or visit them online at OceanEyeInc.com. This is the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, and I'm right. an OB Diver. Welcome, I'm Johnny. As if you guys don't know already who we are. But uh, we yeah. got a special guest with us today, and it's uh, Chris Gable. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great, guys. How about yourself? Doing good, fantastic, could, fantastic. Could be doing doing a little bit better, you know. Mm-hmm. Some of the news has been a uh, been pretty disheartening out there. You know, it's it's just a shame that we have to you know cover stories like this. You know, as far as uh, diver deaths, it's always um, and and it seems to be happening more frequently as well. Um, we just had another one uh, not too long ago. This was in uh, Louisville, where uh, it was a single scuba diver. Who uh, disappeared while working in the Ohio River in Kentucky underneath a uh, barge? So it was underneath a bar that I. It sounds like he used to frequent there, and he ended up getting trapped. No one knew mm. where he was. Died. Sent the police divers out there to go find the body. Police divers couldn't do it because of the situation, so they had to send commercial divers out there to recover him. So the point that I'm going going to make because I shared that story for a reason. I shared that story because the work that we do is a specialized trade um, that it's not a dangerous trade. It has risks associated with it, but it becomes dangerous when you don't know what you've been doing or what you are doing. And uh, that's kind of when deaths occurred. Um, this guy, he was not following any kind of known, you know, protocols as far as diving is, is concerned. And, he went by himself, and that's a huge no-no. There's a reason why we have a team. There's a reason why we go to dive school, and there's a reason why we have proper equipment for certain jobs. So, um, you know, I feel feel bad for him and the family and friends that he's left behind. But again, there's there's a there's a reason why we do the things that the way we do. And uh, commercial diving is not a game. You know, you can't pretend to be a commercial diver. It's especially sad when we lose a student. You know, that's training to be a commercial diver. So students are really susceptible to uh, to accidents because of their inexperience. You know, they come from all walks of life. So uh, some of them don't have a background in water. Some of them, you know, have never, you know, been on a boat or anything before. And uh, it, it's a little different. But that shouldn't, you know, be a factor in their safety. Right, Johnny? Correct. And uh, Correct. so what do students what should students expect in any dive school when they go to dive school as far as safety is concerned i would expect to see a controlled environment 
an environment where you need to make mistakes. This is where we learn the most valuable lessons is when you go in, make those mistakes, correct those mistakes in a, in a very controlled environment, and then move on. Um, learning that lesson so that in practical application, when it's a lot more dangerous and where you know you have things like Delta P and you know all the things that are really being covered right now, those all come into play. And now you have that practical knowledge to go out into the field and be safe. Because there's a couple of things. First of all, let me say that, you know, our of course our thoughts go out to the families of, of these divers that have lost their lives. Uh, one of the things that's a concern, you know, I, I imagine for all of us is when you're taking a look at how it affects the industry. Um, now we we have more injuries, more deaths, as you pointed out, where we shouldn't. And it makes it look a lot more dangerous than it should be presented. It's not that it's completely safe, as you said before, but, you know, we, you know, you specifically train to go into the water to do these tasks, whatever those tasks may be, from from welding to inspection diving, what have you, and come back at the end of the day. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, not only do we expect them to be uh, treated well and 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 uh, be safe during their training, we also, as if I were to send my kid yes. to a dive school, yeah. that's any dive school, I expect them to have a safe environment out of the water as well. So um, there's something called the Clary Act, and uh, this was named after a college student who uh, she lost her life uh, in a rape murder. And um, the the family got involved and they found out that the school was not reporting their um, their crimes and incidents on campus. So had they been properly re reporting and addressing some of the incidents, they feel that their daughter may not have lost her life. So that's kind of how that act came around in a nutshell. Um, because of that act, all schools, colleges, state schools, trade schools, trade schools, yep, they all. all have to report the incidents that happen on their campus. Yeah. So, what we're doing here on this show also is we're calling for transparency, mm -hmm. you know, for all trade schools to make sure that they are abiding by the Clary Act and reporting their incidents. Now, the police records and police reports are are all public information. So it's pretty easy for a lot of these uh, government investigators to find out, but it's not so easy for the parents. Like this act is not known to a lot of people. I was only made aware of this uh, because of the recent incident that we had at, at the at CDA the dive school there. And um, so when you look at these schools, you look at what they report. And I did research on several trade schools. I'm not talking about just a, uh, Commercial Divers Academy out in Jacksonville. I did research on several trade schools and a lot of their numbers of reported incidents like burglaries, you know, assaults, batteries and everything. They have a lot of zeros in there or a one or a two. And uh, it's hard to believe sometimes. So um, that's not to say that that's, you know, true, but I'm just saying um, these schools have to do their duty and report these incidents because as a parent, I'm not going to send my kid to a school where I feel that they're not safe. And if they're having several incidents at any of these schools, 
at least they can try to take steps to mitigate that by installing security cameras or having guards, steps like that to make sure my kids is kept safe. I mean, you, you kind of get what I'm getting there, Johnny. I do. I do. It's not very, it's not a big ask to ask for transparency, whether it be keeping my son, wife, husband, whatever it may be safe while they're performing at your school, if it's a trade school, or just if they have a simple parking lot. My, I don't want my kid's car getting broken into. I just need to know. I need to know just to make me feel better kind of deal. But um, so that's just kind of something else that I discovered while doing a lot of this research over this last incident. You know, it's it's pretty eye opening uh, what we don't know, you know. So now we do know. And uh, hopefully, you know, all these trade schools will be on top of it and will be, again, transparent in uh, in that area. Um, the other area that we wanted to consider is a. Uh, is equipment. Um, mm -hmm. We don't know whether or not there was equipment failure involved. Um, we don't have the full report back from the investigation, and we probably won't have that for a while. Uh, as we know, one of our show sponsors, uh, Bobby Delis, is representing uh, Fausto Martins, Steve Martins, and uh, we're going to leave the rest of this case in his hands. He's the one that's investigating, and he's the one that's going to bring all these uh, these facts out to light. We don't want to participate in any kind of rumors or any kind of stories that might come out. If somebody has something to say of substance, they're going to have to come out on the record themselves. Um, we did report initially um, from unknown sources, but now is the time to have known sources if they do know something. And if there's nothing there, then there's nothing there. You know, So that's kind of our two cents here at the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. And we're also, like I said before, Johnny, I think the uh, I think we're going to have to just leave the rest of this in the hands of uh, of the lawyers, and uh, yep. they will do their due diligence. We know Bobby Delis; he's going to he's going to get to the bottom of everything. So, mm -hmm. um, we wish him the best and his client the best, and also uh, we uh, wish Victor uh, Victor the best, or his his wife the best too, because that is also in court the uh, scuba death at Flamingo at the Flamingo uh, Resort, where they did the the scuba diving there, mm. and uh, Victor uh, Pierce lost his life. So, um, again, it's all going to come out. The truth always comes out. So that's, that's all we have on that. But one of the things that we wanted to talk about reason why we brought Chris Gable onto the show tonight is, uh, to talk about what possibly could have happened. So from the police report that we received and from, uh, other reports that have, uh, been made to the media, it seems that the helmet filled with water and the diver drowned from that. Um, we wanted to kind of go over with you, Chris, how a hat could possibly fill up with water when the hat's being supplied with air. Well, Mondo, one of the things that I would like to, to interject first is you had some really great points about the Clery Act. And uh, the line between traditional college now in trade schools have been blurred a lot. So your people kind of looked at trade schools as, you know, if you didn't go to college, but now they're offering things like associate's degrees. And even some, some places are offering bachelor's degrees. So it is college. It is, mm -hmm. you know, the quality of education and, and the depth of education has gone uh, up in recent years. So we can't, you know, I look at it as, I'm not looking at it 
as one or the other. And in fact, I'm looking at it as a single education entity. So, you know, you're right that that safety factor has really needs to be addressed and needs to be, you know, it's not one or the other, but both. As far as, as your question on helmets, there's several different things that can happen to flood a helmet. And I don't want to, you know, specifically say any one helmet. I mean, you can have, uh, you know, a Kirby Morgan, you can have a Gorski, you can have, you know, a B2, what have you. Um, if you if it's ill-fitting, it's not going to work properly. Um, it, it's going to potentially flood. I know um, I was on rotation a long time ago. The, the two gentlemen that were before me had huge necks. I mean, huge. And, you know, we were diving the old 17 Bs. And, you know, you take a breath in and you could hear it on, on audio. You know, you're, you're really clear, you're really clear, and suddenly you're gurgling because you've, you've now pulled that water in. So was that a safety issue? Absolutely. Was it addressed later? Absolutely. But at, you know, at the time, you know, we all kind of, okay, well, we'll use this equipment because this is available or what have you. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that anyone needs to keep in mind is on the demand helmets, no matter what it is, by their design, they have to draw a vacuum you, know, you have to inhale to get air, which means that you're drawing a vacuum. If you're not uh, properly fitted into that oral nasal, if you don't have the proper fit in your head cushion, that's you're going to have to draw that vacuum in that entire cavity, uh, which which is going to be a challenge. Um, I know there's certain helmets that we've seen where the divers say we don't want an oral nasal. We just, you know, it's uncomfortable, it's intimidating, whatever the, the issue is, the personal issue is, so they don't want to dive it. And I've had conversations about how that demand regulator works and why it's so important and proper fit, proper fit of your neck dam to, you know, it's supposed to be a dam, meaning it doesn't allow water in. If if that's not properly fitting you, as I said, I mentioned in that whole 17B situation, it's going, you're going to have water in. Um, you know, it's in the old days, they said, hey, listen, just put your steady flow on, you know, clear the hat, go on and keep clearing the hat. And we've all heard that. And, you know, we push the limits from time to time. But those, those days are over. You know, safety needs to be a focus. Um, as, we, as we grow, we learn. As we learn, we do better. And that's where we need to be. Um, the other thing, you know, that, that could be a factor, and I don't know this for, you know, uh, you know, if this is a mitigating factor or not, but if that, that diver went inverted, you know, we've all been in that zero vis environment. If you don't know where your bubbles are going and it's very easy to get disoriented, if the diver went inverted, they don't have a proper fitting neck dam, for instance, it's going to act like a fishbowl. It's like, you know, when you take a glass of water, turn it over, trap the air into your sink, you've, you've got a nice little environment. You start turning that, that glass back over, it's going to fill with water. So I don't know if that's a factor, you know, without knowing the facts of the case, um, there's several different things that can happen. Um, you know, there's, there's many different ways of getting air into the hat. Uh, and there's, you know, several ways of, letting air out of the hat as it were and to have it flood. 
you know, going inverted would be one. Okay. So again, if, if you were to go inverted and your neck dam is ill-fitting, then that's extra bad, I would imagine, you know. Well, absolutely, because, you know, air is going to act like air, right? So you put on your steady flow thinking you're going to purge that hat of water and that steady flow is going to act, you know, air is going to act like air. So it's just going to push it right out of that neck dam. Um, it's not going to fill that air cavity or, you know, that that cavity that should have air is going to remain flooded. So you're not going to produce that vacuum that we're talking about that would go force that water through the exhaust. It's going to well, go, right? So that wouldn't be a vacuum. What you'd want is positive pressure. So what you want, the vacuum comes in from you inhaling. Your your lungs are demanding air, so it pulls that diaphragm in, you know, as for instance, pulls a lever and allows you air. What you want when you want to clear that hat is you want a nice positive pressure. You want air getting into that cavity and pushing the water out of that cavity and allowing it to be air. Right. And then, uh, again, going back to the loose fitting neck dam, you know, if that's where the water's going, then, uh, you're pushing air through the neck dam as well. And water's coming in right at the same time. Absolutely. You're going to have water. You're going to have water intrusion into the helmet. And when you're, when you have that steady flow on, I mean, if you ever tried to take a, a, a scuba bottle and turn the air on, you know, you have the, that little bit of bubbles. It's the air is there, but it's extremely difficult to actually utilize. In this case, it's the same way. It's like throwing a bubbler into your helmet, but not allowing any of the, the water to actually evacuate. So it may actually make it worse if that were to happen. Um, well, worse. I'm, I'm not sure if that would necessarily I, be worse, but you're already in a bad situation. Yeah, I, I guess what's worse than you know, sucking water, right? Um, there's not a lot. No. Um, so Chris, with all that being said, um, what's the number one reason for drowning in a hat? Lack of air supply. Um, obviously if you don't have any air, I mean, there's very little, uh, available in that cavity inside the helmet. Uh, so that would, that would be the first and, and that could potentially be uh, a dry drowning. Yeah, because we've a lot of us have felt what it feels like when you do lose air. You don't, you know, for the most part, you don't lose air usually all of a sudden. You'll have a couple breaths and then you're breathing off of the umbilical. Your helmet's going to start to, you know, feel like it's drawing in a little bit. It's going to get harder to suck. So as you're sucking, you know, you're drawing in whatever you can draw in. And if it's got a loose fit neck down, I imagine you're drawing in water, right? Absolutely. You know, we all go through those drills and training, right? Where, you know, you go in, you're you're going towards your dial of breath, you're dialing that out, for instance, and then you, you're going to your steady flow and then suddenly you have an oral nasal sucked up against your face and it's a horrible feeling. Um, I, I know that firsthand uh, and to not have, you know, EGS or, or something like that to provide you with air, um, it's difficult. And you're right. Uh, without having that air, you're drawing a vacuum. And of course, you're drawing even more vacuum because you're maybe in a panic state. So now you're pulling that water into the helmet with an Ill, something like an ill-fitting neck dam or, you know, any of the components of that helmet uh, that are that could potentially fail if it doesn't have, uh, you know, the proper valves installed, um, if they're loose or 
broken, for instance, you're, you know, you are inviting that water intrusion into that helmet. And the reason why I keep bringing up, you know, an ill-fitting, loose-fitting neck dam is because a lot of these dive students, they don't have their own neck dam, you know, for whatever hat they're diving on. A lot of these neck dams are shared between students and you've got different, like I said before, you've got different size necks. Now, given, you know, there should be neck dams sized differently for each, you know, neck. Sometimes a student might not know how it should fit. You know, and then that's where the instructor steps in and teaches them. So, you know, we really hope that that's what they were doing. You know, in this incident, he was wearing the proper equipment. Um, again, that's one of those things where, you know, the the investigators do have the equipment. And, you know, we'll find that out pretty shortly. But we're just talking general here. You know, uh, we're just generally saying what could possibly happen, what could possibly have led to the death of of, uh, of this student. And uh, Nick Dam definitely could be a factor as well as loss of air could be a factor if they were doing out of air drills, which most of us know um, you shouldn't be doing out of air drills with new dive students that uh, haven't been prepared for it. So surprise air drills should not be happening in dive schools. Let that just let everybody know that it should not be happening in dive schools without that student, you know, being aware that that's a possibility or without dry runs on surface. So let's go to that for a quick second. The diver that, uh, that passed away, he had a Gorski on. So if you're switching between a Kirby Morgan hat and a Gorski, um, it's very different, right, Chris? Now, just real quick, Chris, um, Chris, you're the owner of uh, Ocean Eye Inc., right? Yes. And that's out of uh, Pennsylvania, correct? Yes. All right. Highly recommend you. You're one of the sponsors of our show. And um, you are also an authorized dealer and uh, and uh, you provide maintenance on the Gorski hat, correct? Yes, we do. All right. So uh, can you tell us the differences between the two hats and how it could be kind of a learning curve there for a new student? Well, for the most part, both, you know, a Kirby Morgan helmet and a Gorski helmet are very, very similar in the sense that they have a solid ring. You know, the, the Kirby Morgan has a three-piece ring. So it has a split ring, a solid ring, and then the screws, of course, and the neck dam itself. Um, Gorski is very similar. They The difference is they use, the Gorski uses a quad, uh, quad ring, what they call a quad ring O-ring. So it can get slit a little bit, and then the other part would take over for the damaged area of the O-ring. Uh, but for the most part, you know, uh, they're they're very similar. In fact, um, you know, one of the things that, that we've I found with the Gorski is they had a very comfortable neck dam. Um, so, for instance, I could fit into a medium very comfortably. Uh, it was it was very expandable. However, you know, if you cut it. You know, it, people want to trim and they get nervous. They want it a little bit looser, what have you. And I and it shouldn't choke you. It should be comfortable. Same with the with the Kirby Morgan. In fact, Kirby Morgan has since come out with a new neck dam that's very, very comfortable as well and very uh, elastic. Um, so it, there should be a minimal learning curve. But if you only have one ring for, let's say, a Gorski hat and and uh, that's going to be a problem because if you have, let's say, a female diver that has a very small neck and you have somebody that was a former linebacker, you know, in high school, 
they're going to have obviously a very different neck. Um, so either way could be a, a hazard in that it's too loose for the, the female diver. And, and as we discussed before, could potentially flood versus the linebacker who now is choking because the proper blood flow is not happening. An example of this uh, would be, you know, we had uh, a gentleman call a long time ago, hated his dry suit, hated it, couldn't couldn't dive it. It was choking him. I said, well, did you trim the neck seal? And, he, and I heard uh, a long silence on the phone and said, you trim the neck seal? So he couldn't understand why he was coming up, you know, after a dive a with a huge headache. So the same thing can happen. Um, you know, in the example I said earlier with 17B, I went out and I got my own neck thing. Um, because first of all, you know, it was a safety. And again, you know, that was early in my career. Um, you know, as we learn more, we do more, right? So that, you know, that was a, a, a learning experience for me. And, um, you know, any of these schools, when you're talking about a school, you're right. You need to have the proper equipment. You need to have enough variations from that you can really cater to whomever that diver is. Chris, how many different neck dams are there? I know the 77 is different than the 27. The Gorski is different than, you know, the Kirby Morgans. Um, would it make sense for a student to buy their own neck dam or is it just too difficult since they're trying on different hats? I, I really feel that it's the responsibility of the school because the, and the reason why I say that is because the individual, they're a student. How do they know what neck dam fits? Uh, you know, at this point they could say, Hey, I think I'm a small, or I think I'm an extra large. A lot of people are, you know, are going to be really looking at things like the extra large, for instance, on a Kirby Morgan or a Gorski to say, oh, well, my neck is huge. I'm I'm worried about it. And it, they may fit into a larger medium. Um, the standard that comes with any Kirby Morgan helmet, for instance, is a medium. Same kind of thing with the, the Gorski. You can get, you know, um, there's larger options available. But um the, the school is really the one that should be focused on, hey, this is how it should fit. This is how you, you should feel in it. If, if the student is turning bright red, well, then it's too tight. And, and how do we know until we know, right, how what the proper fit is? What, how should a helmet fit a student? You know, like when you put in a, a, a Snoopy or head cushion um, on any helmet, how should you fit in the oral nasal? Should you be smashed up against the, the front of the helmet or should it be comfortable but firm? What is that? What is that? I mean, any of us uh, don't know that before we went to you know a dive school or had that experience from an instructor. So my humble opinion is that I think it should be the responsibility of the school to provide that kind of equipment and the instruction on the appropriate fit. Exactly. And that's our opinion too. You know, um, what do you, uh, what's the cost of a new neck dam? The, I'm not talking about the ring. We're talking about just the, uh, the neoprene. You're looking at maybe a little bit north of a hundred dollars. 
I, I don't know exactly off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Um, That's you know, okay. Depending on the Gorski or or Curry Morgan. Um, the expensive part is when you get the entire assembly, that's expensive, Mm -hmm. but for what the tuition costs on, on these schools, you know, making that investment is both appropriate, you know, for safety. And it's also, you know, economical when you start thinking about the liability. I mean, Mm -hmm. if, if I I don't want to, you know, uh, pick on CDA, for instance, but what happens if we lose another commercial dive school, especially here on the East Coast? Where where do students who want to be in this vocation go? And, um, you know, we don't need to lose more education. However, on the flip side of that, it, it also needs to be a safe education, as you said before. You know, I want to be the last person that would have to tell somebody, oh, well, you know, your loved one is not coming home. I mean, it, that's terrible, you know, and, and there's times that that happens because people have heart attacks and, and they're, you know, living life is dangerous enough, let alone putting some of these additional factors in that um, unnecessary risk. You shouldn't drown in a helmet. No, especially not in training. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. Training should be that safe space where you are allowed to make mistakes, huge mistakes, if if necessary. You know, where you're in a that controlled environment where when you do make a mistake, there's somebody instructing that can that can pull you out and say, see, this is what's gonna happen. And and that was a horrible feeling or that was a horrible situation. Now you've seen it, don't do that again. You know, that's what we're here talking about. You, you know, we don't want this ever to happen again, especially during training. Um, that's why we're talking about how, you know, what to look out for. You know, we're talking about what could have happened so that way everyone's aware. Um, and we're talking about how to mitigate. And that's one of the mitigating ways is to make sure that your equipment fits properly. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was the EGS system. The EGS system is a little bit different than a, than the Kirby Morgan, right? Yes. So on the back of a, a Gorski head, you have two non-return valves. Um, originally, when I spoke to Les, this was back in, I want to say, 2006, maybe. Um, you know, we spoke about that at length. And what he wanted to do is make it a simple system where you can reach behind you. And it wasn't, you know, on at the bottle, off at the hat, or, you know, um, uh, vice versa you know he just wanted to be able to instead of having two valves it was a single valve now later on uh in the current iteration aqualung now offers a uh manifold block with a non-return valve and everything in it so that uh you can uh go to egs with the valve but uh, you know some people they they have some had some concerns um, and, and I hear them about being able to reach back in, for instance, a dry suit where you may have some restricted movement. So it was really preference. I don't want to say one is better than the other. Um, you know, it's just a different design. Right. Whereas the Kirby Morgan, everything's there on the side block, turn the knob to activate the EGS. Um, as far as diving is concerned, 
Um, how should we be diving in the Kirby Morgan? Do we dive with the bottle on all the time and just go to the hat? Or is so that a preference I, as well? I'm not going to tell you how to dive. Um, I, I can make my humble suggestion. And I would say on at the bottle, off at the hat. The reason for that is to keep pressure in that line. It, it, it There's two things. First of all, it's going to, if you have pressure in that line, you're going to be able to see it very, very quickly if you have a problem where you have a leak because bubbles are going to happen. The second thing that is extremely important as well is that you're, you have the potential, now this isn't a guarantee, but you have the potential without pressure in that line of water intrusion because you have you have no pressure in that hose. If you have pressure, you have it on the bottle, there, it's off at the valve, there's pressure in that, that line that's going to keep that water at bay. Yeah, I, and I had previously uh, spoken with Mike Ward over there at Dive Lab, and he was, you know, he said the same thing. Um, he said on at the bottle, off at the hat, and he explained to me why. Another reason why was that if you dive with it off uh, at depth, that O-ring may expand, and then when you activate your EGS, it may blow that O-ring out, which you know you would lose your whole emergency gas supply when you need it the most when you're activating it. So you know that's another reason that he said to dive with it on to keep that hose pressurized. So that's why that EGS block is also a good idea when you're diving the Gorski, because you do keep that hose pressurized, you know, between the bottle and that EGS block. And it's also a little bit closer to turn on because that EGS block is attached to your harness, right, Chris, or, or can it be attached anywhere else? It, it can be attached where, wherever you wish. Now, that also has a, a training issue because while you can have it in many different places, that student and that diver needs to know where that is at all times so that when they're in a highly volatile situation, an out-of-air emergency, they're not searching for that EGS. That, that's something that's, and this is, again, my personal opinion, you know, one of the things that's great about the, the Kirby Morgan is you have that muscle memory. You know exactly where that's at every time. And with training, you should know where it's at every time. Mounted, same place for everybody. It's not, you know, a you can have it as a personal preference, but it really needs to be the same thing for, you know, the entire you know, your dive crew, your student body, what have you, so that they know exactly where to reach. When there is an out-of-air emergency, there's not guessing and searching because they're not going to be in a great mindset when that, that happens, when that oral nasal is sucked up against your face. Um, mm. And it, with and that's one thing I have to give, you know, Kirby Morgan absolutely credit for, is that it's in the same place. It's right there. I think Bev Morgan did an amazing job when he developed that side block. Um, you know, that there's no guesswork. Right. And again, just to go back to the point that we said before, if you're switching between two hats, you know, these, the EGS system is a little different. So if there was a loss of air, um, you know, Fausto or Steve may have gotten to the side block, you know, trying to find something, you know, um, he may have tried to put his free flow, move his hat over the head and forgot that the free flow on a Gorski is out in the front, you know, may have forgotten that he has to go on at the bottle to turn on the EGS. So again, this, this is all, 
you know, differences between the two hats. So we're really hoping that he was trained, you know, on surface and ran through these things on surface before taking that hat into the water, you know, as, as somebody that's also helped young divers, you know, that's something that I would do, you know, do dry runs. I'm a big fan of dry runs, dry runs in everything, dry runs in broco burning, dry runs in welding, dry runs in chainsaw, pneumatics, hydraulics, everything is on the land first, and then you take it into the water. Well, I'm not a, I'm not a dive instructor as it were for a commercial diving school, but you know, in all the education I've ever had, you start with a good foundation and, and I, the dry runs are a great foundation, you know, or part of that foundation. You know, you go over the theory, then you try it in, in practice, but the practice is in, you know, as you said, it's a great idea. And I completely agree with you in a dry run in a very controlled environment, then you go into a shallow environment and then you, you know, work your way up. You don't just immediately go splash, splash somebody, put them in 60 feet or, what have you in water and then have them try it then, you know, that is a recipe I feel in my personal opinion for disaster. Um, you know, the, the good news about, you know, like things like the Gorski is it, that it is in the, you know, more in the front, but in the side of the helmet. So if you even bring your ha- hand up, you know, as far as the steady flow and, and hit that by accident, you should be able to memorize it. But before, it shouldn't be by accident. It really needs to, no matter what piece of equipment you have, you know, how, how does a desco pot? You have air all the time with a desco, right? But what happens when somebody closes the exhaust valve, you know, that's a bad thing too. Um, so, you know, everyone I think really needs to learn, you know, it's like when you learned how to drive, you know, you didn't immediately go out on the highway and check a, a, you know, a car at 85 miles an hour. You know, you went into a parking lot. That's that dry, you know, as you said, that dry run, you know, where it's like, Oh my gosh, you're going to run into a pole and you know, your parent hits the brake. Same idea here. You need to know how these things work before you put it in practice. Again, my humble opinion. Yeah, I think it's a good opinion that's mirrored by every, you know, diver out there that's worth the salt, to tell you the truth. Um, And so we've gone over those couple areas of how, you know, this could have happened. Um, Again, we're trying to rack our brain, you know, as far as how you can get that much water in to where you lose your life, you know. And uh, that's what we, we said, loss of air. And then, you know, the other way is just water intrusion from a being inverted or a loose fitting, ill fitting neck dam. And, you know, just fill it up, you know, with water. Uh, so it's, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate what happened, but, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get some more information out after, uh, after the court case and everything. So, and so Chris, one, uh, go, Mondo, one of the things that I'd like to just, you know, and I don't mean to interrupt, but to interrupt, um, one, one of the things I think that's really, really important and needs to be touched on a little bit is also not not just, you know, things like ill-fitting neck dams, but the maintenance of the equipment to make sure everything's properly maintained so that, you know, it, it's diving is risky enough. Um, there's a, enough uh, different variables that can happen as as we've seen with these accidents, you know. Part you know, the the things that can be 
mitigated is the risk involved, you know, with properly maintained gear. If everything's working, and I'm not saying that that any of this gear was not properly maintained. Um, I'm not trying to say that at all. But one thing that that I think really needs to be focused on with any, you know, any of the schools, the individual divers, the companies themselves, what have you, is to make sure everything is a properly maintained so that it's working 100%. So that is one thing, one risk factor that you can write off that it's not going to happen. You know that you did the proper maintenance. And how do you know that it's properly maintained though? You know, does anybody well, just work on it? You send it to Ocean Eye. Obviously. <laughs> You can certainly do that. Make sure your people are, are appropriately trained, certified, and not only certified, but qualified. And, and I I say that as two different things, uh, you know, that just because you're trained does not necessarily mean that you're really qualified. Do you have the experience? You know, having a knowledge of something and being able to put that in practical application sometimes is two different things. Um, so to make sure that, you know, you have either staff or you use a third party um, you know, to go out and, you know, one of the things that, again, this is a humble suggestion is, and, it, and it's going to sound uh, terribly self-serving, but using a third party, somebody else that will not um, kind of push that through because you have a project and, and your supervisor is on your back and, and you got to get this piece out now. And so, you okay, so I'll, I'll take a look at this later but you write off on it, you know, having somebody else that says, Hey, wait, you, you need to put the brakes on this. You need to maintain this correctly. You know, something needs to be changed. There's a, there's a part that's bad or, or it's not adjusted properly. Um, I, I think is paramount. And so it's making sure that, that you have the, the proper training, the proper uh, experience to do it. And uh, you know, documentation, document everything, um, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that, when there's an accident, um, there was a there was an incident many years ago where where a gentleman passed away. You know, commercial diver uh, had nothing to do with the equipment, and uh, the the company used us uh, in this case. Uh, I should say, let, let me let me clarify. The diver used us actually first, and then you know the company had their paperwork. But when the the person passed away, and it, it was natural causes. Um, you know, we were contacted and within 15 minutes, OSHA, the OSHA representative had that paperwork in their hand. So it mitigated that liability to the company. The company knew what happened step by step, what, you know, what that maintenance cycle looked like. Um, you know, and that was one thing that could be crossed off as a cause list. This is Bobby DeLise of the New Orleans-based maritime law firm DeLise & Hall. For over 40 years, DeLise & Hall has represented professional divers working offshore, in inland waters, or anywhere across the globe. This is what I know. All divers and their families should develop a relationship with an experienced diving attorney before an emergency occurs so that if that emergency does occur, the diver's attorney is there to assist them in their time of need. Consider me and my partners, Alton Hall and Jeanette DeLise, as your bailout bottle. Pray that you will never need to engage us, but should an emergency occur, we're standing by to assist you and your family. Here's something else I know. 
Diving contractors, dive gear manufacturers, third parties, and their insurance companies have the money to have their attorneys on call. Why shouldn't the diver and his loved ones also have an attorney in their gear bag before they leave home? Want to learn how Delise and Hall will be there should you need us? Give us a call at 1-800-DIVER-55 or call me on my cell at 504-460-6200. That's 1-800-DIVER-55 and 504-460-6200. Visit us at our website, www.divelawyer.com or the Deleeson Hall Facebook page. This is Bobby Delise signing off. We're Deleeson Hall, the diver's attorneys. And remember, not all sharks swim in the sea. Thanks and dive safe. Uh, Chris, not to change subjects or anything like that, but um, I would like to talk about Ocean Eye. If that's all right with you. Absolutely. Okay. So <laughs> like like we were discussing right now about uh, servicing the hat and or any kind of repairs or maintenance, I'd just like to know what Ocean Eye provides besides services. Well, we have our own line of equipment. We'll, we build umbilicals. We one of the things that we specialize as far as we sell dry suits, but we'll we'll build dry suits to your specifications. One of the things we really specialize in is hazmat suits. Um, we have our own uh, hot water heater. We have mm-hmm. um, our own compressor that we build. Uh, so we service, support, and sell commercial diving equipment. So one of the things that that I wanted to do in the very beginning of this industry. And the reason why I got into business is because I wanted to make the industry safer. Uh, I wanted to, to be able to not only, you know, sell, but maintain the equipment. So anything that we sell, we also maintain so that it's a one, a single call and it's not trying to guess at who's going to work on this equipment. Um, you know, we, we stick to ADCI standards, for instance, um, to make sure that, you know, when, when companies are going through their audit, we want to make sure that documentation squared away and their equipment squared away. Oh, nice. So you also uh, provide consulting then? Absolutely. So if, if somebody wants to go either through a project um, or are looking for, you know, a, a specific uh, configuration, we can certainly, you know, we may not even provide the equipment. We may just provide, you know, you want this thing from this company or here's three different bids from these from these companies and you can choose what you will. But we can even do up to and including now uh, building custom dive trailers. It's awesome. So, Chris, what's your uh, what's your background there as far as uh, underwater work and diving? <clears throat> well, um I, I worked as a commercial diver myself um, for a while, and uh, I worked for, I don't know if I can mention this, but, you know, uh, several different companies, uh, uh, LGA Engineering, Birds All, uh, so, and uh, Dependable Marine Service, and companies like that, did some salvage work, um, and I needed to take a look at a, first of all, Longevity, 
in in the uh, in the industry. You know, I knew that there was a, a pretty much typically a finite amount of time that you're going to be in the water. Um, the other thing that I had a real problem with at the time was uh, getting gear maintained. Um, you know, I know I did some studying and, and found that uh, the CDC did a study many years ago, and uh, it was the the statistics said that you had divers and uh, injuries one in uh, in a hundred thousand hours of diving in the uh, recreational industry. And yet you were 10 times more likely to suffer an injury or, or catastrophic injury um, in commercial diving. And I wanted to do my part to change that, to make that this industry more safe, you know, sort of my unofficial motto at the, you know, and it's the same today as it was then is that everybody gets to go home at night. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, my fellow people in the industry would go home at night to their families. And, and, you know, now we've been in business long enough that we've seen, you know, people that we dealt with in the beginning, their children getting into the industry. And I certainly don't want to be the person that has to look them in the face and say, your loved one passed away. You know, I'm really sorry you know, for whatever reason, you know, if, if we can do anything to, to make this industry a little bit safer, I want to make that happen. That's a great reason. I mean, I, let's face it. I think a lot of you guys out there know that I've got five kids, you know, that's a lot. One of them's bound to be a diver, you know, I hope not, but one of them's bound to be just odds <laughs> and averages, you know. Um, I don't want any and, of your kids to show up at my doorstep with a you know, baseball bat or gun, you know. <laughs> well, definitely a baseball bat. So, so. no, uh, yeah. So, I mean, we all want the industry safe, you know, for others, for ourselves, and for our future divers or future generation that's coming behind us. Um, cause that's the only way this industry is going to survive is, you know, the people behind us, you know, it's our duty to do our due diligence to make sure that we pass on that knowledge and we make things better for them and safer for them. And, uh, you being a commercial diver before starting your business, you're not just a salesman, you know, what, you know, they need out there in the field, you know, how to make things better. Um, and that's, that, that's huge in my book, you know? But one of the things I, I want to add to that is that I learn every day. And that's one of the things that that I really uh, drill into my folks, too, is that we learn all the time. Things change just because they were the right thing 10 years ago doesn't mean they're the right thing today. So it's keeping that open mind and, and being able to learn and not only learn, but pass that knowledge on. Um, to people. I, I remember, you know, the days when you were talking about EGS. I remember the days when the EGS bottles, you know, people didn't want to wear them. And uh, there was a, a gentleman that called and we were, he was debating. Uh, he was a commercial diver and he was saying that, you know, well, why should I have to wear this bottle? Um, it's a pain in the neck. I'm only in, in eight feet of water. What I told him is, are you nine foot tall? Because unless you can get your head out of the water, you it's worthless. Um, you're still going to drown if something happens. 
And he had said, you know, the job that he was on, he was very overweighted because they were, he was using um, hydraulic hammers on the bottom. I, I don't, you know, breaking up some concrete or something, but they had uh, an electric compressor. Uh, um, and about three weeks after we had that conversation, he agreed that to put on an EGS bottle. Um, I got a phone call that said, thank you, because apparently somebody had secured the electric from his uh, compressor. They didn't realize that it was running out of air and the volume tank drained. And if he didn't have that EGS, he would have been in big trouble. I remember the days when I was wearing a 19 early in my career, you know, thinking I was all cool because I had the smallest bottle on the job site, you know, it's too funny. Um, now I have now, the biggest yeah, bottle. You have the biggest bottle now. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> there, there's a K bottle on his back. Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> no, sometimes these guys think it's a K bottle. I, 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 I did a, I dove most of my career with a 63. So, and the reason why I did that is because I got a good deal on a Craigslist. I think I got it for like 50 bucks. So why not? You know, because you hardly feel it on your back when, when you're in the water anyways, it's just on the surface where it's a little, little heavy, you know, and uh, definitely every extra little bit of air that you have in an, in an emergency situation uh, goes a long way, you know, every chance you get, you know, every chance to give yourself that advantage of making it back home is worth it. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, divers overseas, a lot of those guys dive with 80s on their back, huh? Um, I, honestly, I, I can't really answer that question. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what the IMCA standard is. Um, I know that, and honestly, you know, I understand that our standard is the enough air to get to a, another air source, which is vague. Um, and it's up to the, you know, the, the diver to make that call. And I think you're wise to, you know, dive with a bigger bottle. Right I, I want to I have enough air that I can complain about not having air. Right. So as far as, uh, your consulting, just real quick, um, would it be a bad idea for dive schools periodically on their own? to maybe get an outside consultant to come in and just kind of just, you know, look over everything and just be like, Hey, you know, is there anything we can do better? You know, do we need this or that, or just have a, a, a third party go in there and just take a look. I think it, it would be a great idea to have another set of eyes um, on it to, to be able to, you know, go through an audit, for instance, to be able to, to say, you know, Hey, this is where the standards are. This is where you might be lacking. This is where you're doing great. And, and to be able to interface, you know, and as far as consulting folks like yourself, you know, that you can take a tour of a school and say, Hey, uh, you know, this is great, but this isn't what's done in practice. This may be wonderful for your curriculum, but the curriculum may be 10 years old. So, you know, for, to audit all of it um, for, you know, it's a combined effort. I look at, any of this as a team. So, you know, as for instance, what you, you know, for what you do and your commercial diving work, you're working for, you know, a client of sorts. So you're working for somebody that needs a task done. We're here to help you get that task done. 
the manufacturers uh, are there to put together the equipment to get it to us, to get it to you, to get the task done. And, and for folks like us, for instance, and yourself to maintain that same equipment so that in the end, you know, the, the task gets done, the people make money, you know, Hey, everybody has to pay bills, right? Five kids like to eat apparently uh, probably three times a day. So you have to make money, um, which is, you know, not a bad thing. And uh, so it all really needs to gel and work together so that from the dive school to retirement, you know, it takes a lot, of, it, you know, literally like, you know, to use a cliche, it takes a village. It takes everybody to do their part to make sure that it works. And it's a good selling point for your school too, or whatever organization you're part of that you've, you know, had volu- that you have voluntary audits, you know, uh, there's no reason why you have to wait until there's an accident to be audited by DCBC, EMCA, or ADCI, or any other organization. You know, I, I'm just this is my personal opinion again, but I think it would behoove some you know schools and companies to to call up you know uh, an industry professional and be like, hey, can you can you shoot down to our our school or our company and uh, just kind of take a look at things and just uh, give us a little you know, a punch list of things that, that we might have to work on or, or something like that. And those documents are going to stay with the school, you know, that way they can work on them. Uh, again, like I said, that's just my personal opinion. You know, I'd want another set of eyes on me. And I think it's a, I think it's a great opinion um, because, you know, in the end, how wonderful would it be to say, we're a school, we've been in business for 20, 30 years. We've had zero dive accidents. Are you going to send your child there? It's going to be better than, you know, oh, well, yeah, we've been a few people. We had a death here and there. That That's not going to give you the warm and fuzzy. And to invest a significant amount of money and time in, you know, equipment, education, what have you, to, to put your child or, you know, put yourself through those kinds of schools. Yeah, I mean, I think we're on the same page there. That's absolutely right. You know, these students are paying enough money as it is for their tuition. So why not make sure they have the best gear and uh, the best possible learning environment and the best possible uh, training? You know, I, I that's just, again, that's my opinion. And uh, I believe it's the opinion that's shared by pretty much every diver out there. And, and can you imagine what how you would feel? If, you know, you could really be confident of the education of that person, that 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 new diver that you have to take under your wing, but you know that they have a really good, solid foundation to work from rather than saying, remember, you know, everything that you thought you knew. OK, forget that. You, you need to start from scratch. Right. And to, and to tell you the truth, that's an argument. You know, too, um, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of divers out there that believe that school is just to get that card, just to get that cert. And you're going to do all your learning on the field. Uh, I don't believe in that. Like you, Chris, I believe there needs to be a good, solid foundation to build from, because if you show up there, you know, green as green can get and not knowing anything, um, you're not going to get the opportunity to learn on the job. And it's amazing. This industry is very unique 
in that it's a small niche industry that everybody knows everyone. And it's a, a great thing. Sometimes it's a challenging thing, but for the most part, it's a great thing. Um, and we can take advantage of that in, in the sense of being able to uh, really make sure that, first of all, from you know the, the beginning to the end of the career is a, is a good one, is a healthy one. And that, you know, you have some hopefully money in the bank and great stories to tell your grandkids. Yep. I mean, this is a great trade. I love what I do. I love the business. And uh, I, I, I don't see myself, you know, being able to do anything else. You know? Absolutely. So, again, uh, it's amazing that you were able to come on. This is going to be a great episode for those that are thinking about going to dive school, those that are in dive school. And uh, those new divers out there as well, and even those older divers too, that don't dive with a proper size bailout bottle, right? And it's my pleasure to be on. Thank you for the opportunity. And absolutely, the, the, the safer we are, the better. All right, Chris, just before you go, uh, we wanted you uh, to plug yourself a little bit as far as uh, your company and also uh, the work that you do with uh, Underwater Magazine. Uh, thank you. So... Ocean Eye Incorporated, we sell, service, and support, and build commercial diving equipment. Uh, we offer uh, commercial diving equipment. We offer consulting services for anyone who wants to go through and are, you know, bidding a project, for instance, and, you know, want an idea of the type of equipment that they're going to need. Um, we're here, uh, we're located in Pennsylvania, in southeastern Pennsylvania, about uh, an hour outside of Philadelphia. Um, and it would be our pleasure to, to help anyone in the industry. If they have any questions, I do do the maintenance article for Underwater Magazine. Uh, I've been doing that for ooh, about six or plus years now. Um, and uh, you can read that on their website or ours. Uh, we we uh, release that as well. Um, I'm also a member of the safety Dive Safety Committee for ADCI. So, you know, if there's any concerns uh, that someone wants me to bring to that committee, I would be happy uh, to help with that as well. That's amazing. Awesome. And you do have a good article. You know, you do have good articles in that magazine from dry suit repair to how to, you know, set your over bottom pressure. I mean, there's so there's a wealth of information in those articles. So it would behoove any diver to uh, to go back, read the archives, go to your website. Your website's uh, Ocean Eye Inc. Uh, dot com right mm -hmm. www.oceaneyeinc.com and uh, if my uh, email address is at the bottom of all the articles so if there's something I mean the articles are about serving this community it's not about me just wanting to put stuff out there so if there's anything any ideas anyone has or wants to see an article about please feel free to email me with with your thoughts and uh, I'd, I'd be happy to explore it that's perfect. And I've called you several times before and you've been really knowledgeable and you've been, you, know, you made yourself available, you know, to uh, the questions that I've had related to the jobs that I've been on and uh, you've answered my questions, which is great. So thanks for that, Chris. And uh, thanks for being on the Bottom Dollars Dive Shack. Well, thank, thank you. I, both you and Johnny, I appreciate your time and having me on and, and being able to share all of our opinions. It's perfect. All right, guys, we'll see you next time on the Bottom Dollars Dive Shack. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Bottom Dollars Dive Shack. 
Make sure you like and follow on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast with your friends or anyone interested in commercial diving. The only way that uh, we can make this successful is if we do get a lot of people that are listening. We get more listeners, we get more sponsors, and that means more free stuff for you guys. That's right. We are hooking up all of our diver brothers and sisters in the trade. And uh, if you keep sharing and liking, we're able to do that a lot more. Our Instagram is at Bottom Dwellers DS. Our Facebook is Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. And you can always like and follow me at LB Diver on both. The Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We also have it streaming on our website at thebottomdwellers.com. So keep listening, keep it safe, keep it salty. This is LB Diver, out.